Amen. Thank you, Mike, for leading us in prayer. I invite you now to join me as we listen to the reading of God's word. This morning we are uh, in our second to last Sunday in our Summer in the Psalms series. So this morning, Psalm 112, and next week will be our final Sunday before starting a new series for the fall. Psalm 112, you can follow along in your bulletin insert or in your own Bible. We invite you to open your hearts now to receive God's word for you this morning. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He'll be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, may this text sit softly on our soul now. Open us to what you have us to hear from your spirit today and point us to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So like I said, this is the second to last sermon in the Psalms. We've been there since May. It's been a while. We've been journeying through what we call the, the poems, the songs of the soul, the prayers, the journal entries of the Bible. That's what the Psalms are. They're all these just beautiful heart, heart-wrenching uh, documents that are written down for us for our benefit today. So we've been on this long journey um, through the Psalms this summer. This Psalm, Psalm 112, if you were here last Sunday and you heard Psalm 111, they're actually very similar Psalms. If you remember last Sunday, or if you, or if you weren't here last Sunday, um, it's a, last Sunday's Psalm was an acrostic, which means that each line was a different letter of the alphabet that began the line. And Psalm 112 is the same deal. And we can't see that because we're reading it in English. But if we were reading it in Hebrew, and if you knew Hebrew, you'd see the beginning of each line was a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So again, it's just a kind of a brilliant way to lead people into prayer and into pouring out your feelings and your thoughts before God. So like I said last Sunday to start the sermon, I'll say it again this Sunday. That's a great exercise. Go home today and write A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way down to Z, and just try to Try to use that as, a, as an entry point to prayer, as a way to give thanks to God, as a way to pour out your heart to God. It just sometimes is a, it's good to frame things in a little bit different creative way. So that's a practical idea for you to take home today. But as for today, it's, it's fitting we have some Gordon College students here today because I'm going to reference TikTok, which I know nothing about as a 35-year-old person. It's amazing how much can change in one generation or in a decade. So TikTok. I actually saw something on TikTok this week that I'm going to reference. And for 
Some of you that are even in a different generation, I'm not referring to a physical clock. I'm referring to an online movement of videos known as TikTok. But this one is actually really cool. It's, it's someone from a church in New York City who is interviewing a homeless man, a man who is living on the streets. And this man uh, goes around each day and collects cans and other items that other people are throwing out. And he gathers them. Maybe some people do this in Salem. I've seen folks in Salem do this. They go around and gather the leftover things that other people don't want, and they try to make some money off of it. And this man has found a way to live off of that. Um, And when you're watching the video, this guy's just so full of joy. I mean, he is the happiest person on the internet. I'm convinced of it. And he tells a little bit of his backstory. He was, he was born in Queens and he had a, once had a wife and three kids. But he got into some real big trouble, went to prison, and lost everything. His family left him. They don't want anything to do with him. But when he was in prison, he, uh, he met Jesus. Some three women came from the Bronx and preached the gospel. And he responded and accepted Jesus. And he, here's a quote from him. He says, He says, I have no more tears. I'm all dried out. Now I can only be joyful and laugh and have a good life because it's soon probably going to end. I'm 60, is what he said. Little did he know. He has a lot of life left. But he quoted Ephesians 1.4. He said this verse stuck out to him above anything else. He says, God chose you before the foundation of the world. And he said, whenever I began to have that perspective, I realized that my life is deeply valuable and that God knows exactly what my life is going to look like. And that means every part of it is purposeful, which means he can find joy in the midst of even living on the streets and collecting cans. And he finally finished the, the video by saying, I don't deserve it, but I thank God for his grace. And so as we walk into Psalm 112, we're introduced to a beautiful picture of what life can be like. So last week, Psalm 111, like I've said a couple times already, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are very connected. Psalm 111 was all about the great works of God himself, the amazing things that he does in the world. Psalm 112 uses a very similar strategy, the acrostic, not to show us anymore the great works of God only, but now it shows us the great potential of being a godly person, what the life of a blessed person can look like. And so as we walk into the first couple of verses, the first big point is just to show us what Psalm 112 says your life can be like, what the potential of your life can be. And it's pretty staggering, actually. Verses two through nine, basically the whole psalm, the meat of the psalm, tells us what our life can be like. And there's at least six things here that I'm going to point out that are pretty obvious. And my point is, who wouldn't want these things? Everybody would want these things, I think. Number one, in verse two, a great family. Who doesn't want a great family? Verse two says, the the blessed man is one whose offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. A great family is what a blessed person has. Someone who has great kids, great grandkids, a wonderful spouse, people who do great things, have a good reputation in your town. 
their generation is upright, meaning that there's no rebels or runaways or people getting into mischief or causing trouble in the city. Like everything is just working. It's a great family. Maybe you all, maybe you all come from a family like that, or I'm sure you know families like that, where you look at them and say, wow, that's just a great family. There's not really much you could say that's wrong with that family. Who doesn't want that? And the Bible talks a lot about how, how much a family name is worth. You know, Proverbs 22, for instance, says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and, and favor is better than silver or gold. Or Ecclesiastes 7 says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and it's better than the day of death and better than the day of birth. Like, you just, you can't buy a good name. You have to earn that. You have to have that. And this psalm says that's one thing that a blessed person has, is a great family. The second thing that a blessed person has is comfortable circumstances. Verse 3, it says that they have wealth and riches in their house, meaning that you can buy what you need. You know, you're not wondering where the next paycheck is going to come from. You can... You don't have to stress about if you're going to have enough groceries or enough toiletries to get through just the basic daily needs of life. So you have wealth in your house, enough to not have worry. But then it even is so boastful to say they'll have riches in their house, which is even a little bit more so than just taking care of your basic needs. It means that you actually are so comfortable in your circumstances, you actually have a little bit left over where you can go buy fun things. You can go on trips. You can, you can live a life that is not just ta- having your needs taken care of, but you can splurge and have some nice things and really enjoy life. That's a, that's a wonderful, blessed person. Number three, if you look at the second part of verse three, it says his righteousness endures forever. I take that to mean a blessed person is an awesome person, just a great person. Like you, you just kind of are a good person. Your righteousness, you, you know right from wrong. You have good morals. You learned how to make good decisions. You have a moral compass. You don't get into trouble. You just kind of know what's right. And somehow, this is the hardest part of that, somehow you continue to know what's right and you continue to make good decisions and you don't make that one big catastrophic decision that wrecks your life. It endures forever. You're a righteous person. Again, who doesn't want that? Nobody, nobody wants to make terrible decisions that ruin your life. You want to be a good person. Number four, I know I'm going through these fast, but it's because we're getting to deeper points later. Number four is it says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Or even if you look down at verses seven and eight, it says he's not afraid of bad news. He's not gonna be afraid. I would summarize this as saying, even the bad things, for a blessed person, turn out to be okay. They turn out to be good. They have a way of turning into something even better. So the bad doesn't just define this person. It actually leads into something that can be redeemed. Light dawns in the darkness for the blessed person. It says in verse six, they are not moved. So when bad things come, you're able to stay firm. You're consistent. You're stable. And it says you're not afraid of bad news. Like you kind of realize that life has bad things that come and you're able to respond. And as the, as, the, as the saying goes, you make lemonade out of lemons. It's just a good life. You respond even when bad things happen. Number five, this is I think the most stunning one out of all of them. Number five, it says in verse four, the second part of verse four, 
the blessed person is gracious, merciful, and righteous. So here's the thing about that. That's actually a direct quote of Psalm 111, verse 4, which if you just look to the other column or the next page over in your Bible, Psalm 111, verse 4, it says, God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So in verse 4 of Psalm 112, it says, the blessed man is gracious and merciful and righteous. Meaning, the point here is that a blessed person has the character of God, has the characteristics of God. He begins to reflect God and his ways. He's a gracious and merciful person. He's, he's, being able, he's living out the ways of God in his, day, or his or her daily life. And if you go on to verse 5 or verse 9, they, they, they're generous and just people. They're, they're on the side of justice. They give away things. They're generous and just, just like God himself. They begin to reflect the character of God. And then lastly, verse 6, this is at least the last thing that a blessed person has, is in verse 6 and in verse 9, it says, you know, talking about how things will be remembered forever, meaning that you will have a legacy that lasts beyond your life. And I'm, okay, I'm just going to say it. This is my corny dad joke moment. You're going to have more than just a legacy, meaning a Subaru legacy like I drive. You'll have a deeper legacy than just my car. I couldn't, I couldn't resist it. I just had to say it. Thank you, for the, thank you for the laugh. I appreciate it. I'm looking at it. I'm like, why did I even go there? Corny dad jokes. You'll have more than a Subaru legacy. You'll have a real legacy, a legacy that lasts beyond your life. You'll be remembered. Your gravestone will actually be one that is visited by others. People will see something happening in the current day and say, oh yeah, that's because this person once did this. Verse nine even says, you'll be honored. Your horn will be exalted. You will be an honored person. So that's what a blessed person is. The the Psalms love to use that language of blessing. Now here's the deal. Those are the six blessings of a, of a blessed person, something that everybody would want. That's the life that you can live that Psalm 112 puts out for you. And yet within the Psalm, you kind of get this idea of, well, that's not the case. What are the things that would cause me not to have that? And this is where traps come in, the traps of Psalm 112. Basically, everything I just mentioned to you is, in one way, you could reinterpret that as the American dream. As you will be a happy person if you have those six things. David Platt says in his book, Radical, he says, As the American dream goes, we can do anything we set our minds to accomplish. There's no limit to what we can accomplish when we combine ingenuity, imagination, innovation with skill and hard work. We can earn any degree, start any business, climb any ladder, attain any prize, achieve any goal. James Truslow Adams, who is the one credited with coining the phrase American dream in 1931, described it as a dream in which a man and a woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. Now, let me just pause. Like, the American dream has many, many good things to it. We live in a blessed place to be able to pursue things that we want and have the freedom to go in and live the life that that we can can dream of by working hard and going to college and finding a job and being a good person. All those things are wonderful. 
There's many places in the world where that's not a freedom that people have. They're just born into something they can't get out of. But Platt goes on to say this. He says, the goal of the American dream is to make much of ourselves. It's an individual-based life. But he says, here the gospel and the American dream are clearly and ultimately antithetical to one another. While the goal of the American dream is to make much of us, the goal of the gospel is to make much of God. And so really, any dream, any kind of thing that you're pursuing that is for you alone is a trap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer even talks about how the church can be a trap. The community of the church itself, as beautiful and as good as it is, it itself can turn into something that actually is upside down. He says this, he says, every human wish and dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. This means that even the church itself can be turned into something that it wasn't meant to be. If you're dreaming of the church to be a perfect community where your needs are met, your spiritual appetite is quenched week after week, then maybe your, your dream of community has become self-centered itself. And so these are so easy to fall into, these traps. Psalm 112 gives us just a couple other ones that are pretty, pretty obvious throughout the psalm. You know, Psalm 112 talks about money quite a bit throughout this. Verses 5 and 9 talks about, you know, the positive way to deal with money, being generous and lending. But the, the opposite is kind of lurking there in the shadows, kind of the, okay, if I'm not generous and I'm not lending and I'm not being sacrificial with my money, then I won't live a blessed life. And so greed easily enters into the human heart. If we're not especially careful, every decision we make in life becomes a money decision. Everything turns into, well, is this going to allow me to live the life that I want to live or I need to live? Or is, is, am I serving money or is money just a gift from God to me to live out for his purposes? The traps and snares of money are throughout the scriptures. And Jesus actually talks about money more than he talks about hell. Because money gets to the heart so quickly and easily. Another trap is power. You know, we read about how the, the blessed man is someone who fights for justice and someone who looks for others for their good. But obviously the opposite of that one is someone who, who uses any power they have for their own good. So verses five through seven, it talks about it's well with the man who deals generously in lens, who conducts his affairs with justice. Well, what about if you don't conduct your affairs with justice? What if you conduct your affairs with injustice? What if you treat your coworkers unfairly? What if you treat your neighbor unfairly? What if you're actually looking out for your own self-interest in things more than you're looking for the justice of those who are being pushed down? And so using power for injustice means you're not treating people fairly or well, but instead you're using power to build up your own name. It's not well for the one to be remembered for your own name's sake. So remember the gravestone image? Someone who's remembered beyond their life and someone goes and visits your gravestone? What are they visiting your gravestone for? 
And lastly, the other trap is fear. It says the blessed man is not afraid of bad news. In verse 8, it says he will not be afraid of anything, even his adversaries. But what about those of us who do get afraid? That's the reality. We do become afraid in life, and we end up living many of our days in fear of what could happen to us, of what if my loved ones die? What if I, what if I can't live the life that I always dreamed I was going to live? What if I find myself in my mid-40s or 50s and things haven't turned out the way I've wanted to them? It's bad news. The things that keep you up at night and cause you to get bad sleep. We end up living cautious, fearful life, looking around us, expecting something bad to happen or, or fearing something bad to happen. And it turns into a lack of trust in our own heart of, I just don't think life is actually going to turn out the way I want it to. And I live in fear. Or even another worst case is you end up looking at other people and fearing other people in your life. People maybe that have power over you or people coming after you. We're fearing that people are out to get you. And many people, I hear this in our world today, are fearing that even of the people we're supposed to trust and respect the most. People in our government, people in our, in our police, people that are in our authority over us. We begin to fear what the people over us may do to us. And we end up living in fear of them instead of in trust of the, of the authority God has given to them. And so those are some of the traps And instead of that kind of fear, we're actually invited into another, a different, more transformed kind of fear in this psalm. So the last point I want to make is is just what I would say the surprising key to a blessed life that Psalm 112 invites us into. It says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who greatly delights in his commandments. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, not who fears bad news, not who fears adversaries, not who fears anything else, but who fears the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who greatly delights in his commandments. Now, that phrase, fear of, the fear of the Lord, appears throughout the Old Testament. And it can be really baffling if you haven't read through the scriptures and kind of see the theme of what does it mean to fear the Lord? And I think it's interesting that this verse includes fear and delight as if they're synonymous. Fearing the Lord and delighting in the commandments of God are put back to back, which in in the Psalms, uh, Hebrew scholars call that parallelism, meaning that they're they're two ways of, of saying the same thing. You're putting fear of the Lord and the delighting in his commandments next to each other as if they are going on the same path. They're the same road, two lanes on the same highway going to the same destination. What does this mean? It seems odd to us that fear and delight can be in the same place today. But as I began to think about it, are fear and delight actually that different? I began to think of, I tried to begin to think of some examples in my own life of things that I both fear and delight in at the same time. And if I lose one of those, then it's not really uh, happening in the way that I love. And so here's an example, swimming. I love to go swimming. Swimming's fun. But there's also a healthy amount of fear in swimming that if I stop treading water with my legs or stop moving my arms, I could die swimming. I could drown in the pool. I could get overtaken by a wave. 
And yet I still love to swim because there's the healthy fear of knowing it could go poorly if I don't know what I'm doing. Or hiking. I've read this a lot about, I've, I've experienced this, but I've also read more about it because people have done more challenging hikes than I have in the world. But uh, when you're going on a big hike, one thing that's really important to do, especially in the New Hampshire mountains, is check the weather forecast before you go. Because you can get caught in a really dangerous situation on a mountain if you don't know exactly what's happening in terms of the changing weather. Or if you don't know where the drop-offs are, if you're not wearing the right kind of gear. And yet, hiking is one of my favorite things to do. It brings so much joy, but I have to have the healthy amount of fear of doing it in the right way. And some people call this respecting the mountain, right? Respecting uh, what the, the fear of the mountain. Or even just a, maybe a more practical example is being a son or being a daughter. You know, I, I take great delight in being a son of my parents and being raised by them. And yet also I knew that there were bounds I shouldn't pass. The fear of, of my parents knowing that they could rebuke or correct me. You see, if you take out delight, then fear turns ugly. Fear turns into a tyrant. If we're just told in the Bible to fear the Lord, then that means that God is a tyrant. That God is a, a dictator who's going to just smash us the minute we step out of bounds. But if you take out the fear of the Lord and you only keep the delight, that means you can do whatever you want. You got no bounds. Sure, go swim in the ocean. Keep going. Yeah, just keep going. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And then you drown because you didn't have the fear of the ocean. So you got to have the fear and the delight to experience the life that God has for you. So therefore, to find the kind of life you've always wanted, to be, to be all in to the life that, God's want, that God wants you to have, you have to have this fear and, your, and joy. And it's interesting that that brings us to the person of Jesus himself. You know, when Jesus showed up and began ministering to people around Israel and began teaching a countercultural way to live and began to teach about the kingdom of God, I was struck this week by how many times Jesus set the bounds of what it means to follow him. And it's almost the opposite of what you hear in many churches today, how Jesus preaches and teaches. So for one example, in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 25, Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, what do you expect him to say after that? If anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, Find your joy in me, delight in me, spend time with me, come to church, worship me, sing, sing songs that are theologically rich, read the Bible. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and then follow me. And then he says, whoever would lose his life will save it. But whoever wants to save his life will lose it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Later on in that same chapter, Jesus is confronted by someone who says, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And Jesus says, really? Will you really follow me wherever you go? Let me just read this one more directly for you. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Again, what do you expect Jesus to say next? Jesus said to him, 
Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But the man said, first, let me go and bury my father. What do you expect Jesus to say next? Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another person said, Jesus, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say goodbye to all those at my home. What do you expect Jesus to say to him next? Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you got to be homeless. You got to let someone else do your dad's funeral. And you better never look back. That's the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says, give up everything and you'll find me. Follow me. Later on in Luke 14, Jesus gives the great parable of counting the cost. He says, if you're going to follow me, you better know how much it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. To get the life you've always wanted, Jesus invites you to give everything up. And it's kind of a brilliant way that Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you better be all in. And if you're going to be all in, you're going to find more than you ever could have expected on the back end. But you better know what you're going to give up first. Because to get those six things, that blessed life that Psalm 112 gives you, it may look different than what you thought. But Jesus says, will you trust me to give up everything that you think is comfortable and right in the perfect circumstances in your life and put your full trust in me and trust that I'll give you so much more back in return than you ever than you ever imagined. So the surprising key to this good life, this blessed life that I think Psalm 112 leads us into in one word is generosity. Generosity, living a life that is willing to be given back fully to God. And then when, give back, when given back fully to God, then is giving lavishly to others around you for the sake of their good, because that's what Jesus has done to you. Generosity is mentioned three times in this short passage. It says, wealth and riches are in his house, verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who deals generously and lends, in verse 5. And then it says later, he's distributed freely. He gives to the poor. And the reason I know this is the, the, the key to this psalm is because the way the psalm ends, it says the wicked person looks at this and hates it. The wicked person hates generosity. The person who's not following God does not see generosity as the right way to live. He doesn't understand it one bit. But to the one who is following, to the one who's giving everything up, he looks at it and says, I've gained more than I ever could have gained on myself. This is not just monetary generosity, which was given earlier, though that's certainly part of it, but this is whole life generosity with every aspect of your life, your desires, your identity, your vision, your job, your dreams. Do you trust Jesus with it? Do you trust the one who gave himself for you to actually give you a heart for a life that you never could have planned yourself? When, you're, when your life turns upside down, do you trust that God is actually turning it right side up? Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's where the moths come. That's where the rust destroys them. It's where the thieves come in and steal it. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For this is where your treasure is, and there your heart will be also. True generosity is a response to something even greater. It's a response to the grace of Jesus himself. As the front of your bulletin says, and is, it's a quote by Randy Alcorn, and I've heard, I've heard other people put their own spin on it as well. He says, grace is the lightning to the thunder of generosity. So we've had a lot of storms in New England this summer. You hear the thunder first. Grace is the lightning to the thunder of generosity. Generosity is the visible evidence of a transformed life. It reveals that you've met Jesus, that you want to follow him, that you want to give everything for him. And even though, even if it has no monetary value to you, no benefit to you circumstantially or materially, but you're modeling your life after Jesus, the one who graciously gives you all things. I'm looking here at just a bunch of different passages I could read to you. I'll just give you the references. You could read them on your own time. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9 is is Paul inviting the Corinthian church to this kind of generous living. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, is, is the apostle Paul inviting the Roman church to that kind of generosity because he says, the son of God gave himself up for all. How, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, is Jesus showing how he gave up everything for you. He emptied himself. And so the life of blessing is the fear of the Lord and the delighting in his commandments together, which is lived out through a generous life, a life of overflowing joy of what God has given to you. Let me just finish with a brief story and then we'll, we'll sing our final song kind of as a response. But um, this is a, a story from a, a book called Gospel Patrons, which is a, a, a blue book that gives stories of um, wealthy people who have given so lavishly of themselves over the years um, in a movement called uh, Gospel Patrons. But here's one story of it. It says this, I'm just gonna read it directly. It says, a few months ago, I heard rumors of a woman who travels around the world proactively looking to support those who spread the gospel among the least reached peoples of the earth. Who does that? I said aloud, I have to meet this woman. And about a month later, I did. I learned that she was in her 40s when she unexpectedly inherited a large portion of her family's business worth millions of dollars. Can you imagine that? Like she didn't earn this money. It just was like an unexpected inheritance given to her out of nowhere, millions of dollars. But contrary to what you would expect, her reaction to this news was not joy, but fear. She says, up until then, I had rarely given away even 5% of my income. And even at that thought, I was giving away my life savings. I was scared to death. So this person was asking her, he said, do you ever think of what you would have done with the money if you had not chosen to give it away for gospel purposes? And she said, without hesitation, it would have ruined me. I know people who put their money in the bank and never touch it again, never steward it. And lots of other people in my shoes who spend it all and end up in debt or others who have lost marriages over money problems, which includes having too much money. It would have ruined me. But now after many years, the foundation I started gives away $300,000 each year and I love it. And I love it. 
So to finish, let me read 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's an extraordinary claim. To give away everything is to take hold of that which is truly life. And that's my invitation to you in response to this. Whatever that generosity can look like for you, just know that that sacrifice is you letting something go so that you can actually take hold of that which is truly life. Let me close us in prayer and we'll sing a final song. God, thank you for displaying generosity to us in the person of Jesus so that we're not just left with a, an empty teaching of a God saying, go do this. No, you didn't just teach us, you showed it to us in the person of Jesus who gave everything so that people like us could take hold of that, which is truly life. So I pray your blessing on each person here today. Um, I know when we talk about money, it can, it can get to a place in our heart, uh, which can raise up some red flags or bring up some defensiveness. So God, I pray um, that you would graciously, gently, tenderly allow those defensivenesses uh, to fall uh, so that we might receive from you a really countercultural message today. We love you. We want to worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.